Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. It's this, you said sci-fi like 19 bazillion times. <laughs> Just because I'm so new to I it. I <laughs> know, but you mentioned like all the ones that I think might be up here. I'm like, oh, what, babe, she might like this. No, oh, look, no. she's already read it. <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle. And this is What Should I Read Next, episode 120. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, we do love to hear from you. Here's an email I got this week from Carrie. Hi, Anne. I've been a diehard, never-miss-an-episode listener since episode one. It isn't a terrific Tuesday without the latest episode of What Should I Read Next? In the past, I listened to the podcast on your website so that I could add books to my TBR in real time. Okay, Anne here. I hear a lot of listeners do that. This is the only podcast they listen to on the actual web. Okay, back to Carrie. However, since you are now available on Spotify, I am finding this platform even more ideal. I sync it up through my Echo Dot and it's working perfectly. Thank you for always having a multitude of listening platforms available. Okay, thanks for that, Carrie. And readers, write us anytime and tell us what you think of the show and how you listen to it. The easiest way to do that is to hit reply to our free weekly newsletter. Sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. And readers, we want to get to know you better. What Should I Read Next is competing with other shows to get the most responses to a quick survey. It only takes a few minutes of your time and you can do it straight from your smartphone. Help us out and support the show by going to wondery.com slash survey and filling it out. That's wondery.com slash survey. W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash survey. Now about today's guest, Elizabeth Smith, she told me I could call her Liz, is an English major living a unique life that will certainly inspire envy in a hefty number of our listeners. She and her family homeschool, run a theater company, tend a hobby farm, and herd sheep. I'll spare you further details now because it's way better when Liz tells it. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to talk books with you. And I'm especially intrigued by some of the things you said on your guest submissions. So... I'm eager to dive into them today. Okay, great. Okay, so I know that you live in a small Western Pennsylvania town and have an interesting mm -hmm. career. Could you take it from there? Well, what I've done since college is gotten married and had three kids, and we homeschool our kids. Um, my husband and I, a couple of years ago, decided we wanted to start a theater company. So that's pretty much taken up most of our time when we're not homeschooling. And I guess on the side, we have this little hobby farm in our little Western Pennsylvania farm. Pretty much all of our passions, we just thrown into <laughs> a life and we're making it work. <laughs> Can you tell me what it even means to run and operate a theater company? I can't envision that what that would be like for you. I mean, sometimes we buy tickets to local shows and we attend and that right. begins and ends my knowledge of the theater. Right. Okay. So we actually do not have a physical theater. We do our shows in very strange places. The first show we ever did just to make a name for ourselves, was on a big stage at the local community college. And that was um, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, because everybody knows what that is, even though they didn't know what our, or who we were as a theater company mm -hmm. yet. Then we started doing plays like in an art gallery. We started doing uh, Shakespeare in the Park a couple of years after that. So we, we do um, a park show every summer. 
what it means for us is my husband and I, we have a board of directors, which are friends of ours who have other interests and can help us make decisions that aren't just artistic. And we choose plays, we find directors, we run auditions, we have friends at a local um, Anglican church, and they allow us to use our, their parish hall for rehearsals. So it's been kind of a thrown together, but very organized chaos for the past five years. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a really great artistic outlet for both of us. There's a lot of theater in our small town and we're an hour away from Pittsburgh, which is a big theater city. And there's not a shortage of theaters down there, but where we are, there's a community theater, there's a musical theater and we just kind of started because we thought there was kind of a need for classical playwrights. There wasn't a lot of Shakespeare going on. Uh And so that is where our focus is. We were working with kids locally to help them in a Shakespeare monologue and scene contest, which takes place at a big theater down in Pittsburgh. Um, And that's a lot of fun. We've actually gotten our kids involved in that, even though they're not huge theater kids, even though we drag them to rehearsals and performances um, (laughs) for the past five years. That's been our life, a huge part of our life for the past couple of years. I can imagine. What made you decide to take this leap? Well, we both have theater backgrounds. I was an English literature major in college, and I loved theater so much that I started taking a lot of classes and was able to, by the end of the four years, tack a double major on. So I was English lit in theater. And my husband, when I met him, he was working, um, he's a musician. So he was doing musical directing for a lot of high schools in the Pittsburgh area. We used to live in Pittsburgh. So we decided, you know, when we met and started having kids, we didn't do theater anymore because it just takes so much of you. And when you have babies, you know, (laughs) that takes a lot of you too. So I guess about five years ago, we were starting to have that theater bug biting us again wondering how we could do it. We love the the local community theater here is great, but they weren't doing the shows that we love to do. So we thought, well, let's make our own theater company. And it's really my husband's fearlessness that got us started. (laughs) How many shows are you all putting on a year? We started out with two a year, then we worked ourselves up to four a year. That was exhausting. So we haven't done a show since this summer. We're taking like this five-month, six-month break, Mm -hmm. and we're just starting to plan the summer show right now. So we'll probably go back to, we were doing A Christmas Carol for five years straight Uh every Christmas. And then we did Shakespeare in the Park for four years straight. We're coming up on our fifth year. And so we would do an art house show in the spring, and we did um, like a Halloween show two years in a row. Uh But four shows in a row when we were producing, directing, acting in them was exhausting. So we've decided to cut it down and find our focus again and figure out what we really need to focus on. And that's probably going to be Shakespeare. That's our passion. So I think it's really interesting that you have the theater company, which so many people dream of doing one day. (laughs) And you also have the hobby farm, which so many people dream of doing one day. And also there's a strong history of writers about the midpoint of their career, um, either in words or in their brain going, I need, I need something tangible to mess with, with my hands and not just words on a page. And they go get a bunch of sheep that they start raising. So (laughs) tell me about your hobby farm. We have just seven acres, and that's just enough to keep us very busy all all year long. When we moved here, we wanted acreage. My husband really dreams of 70 acres. <laughs> I think seven is perfect. Wow. <laughs> we thought we have three boys, so we wanted to give them room to run. And I have always dreamed of being around livestock, especially sheep. I just remember watching the hillsides in Scotland and Ireland when I would visit there a couple of times in my youth and seeing them and just thinking, look how idyllic and look how serene that looks. Well, it's not idyllic and it's not serene when you're actually owning sheep. <laughs> it, it's They're lovely. And I we've, we've had them for seven or eight years. We've gone through several cycles. We only have female sheep because rams can be pretty dangerous, especially because our kids were pretty young when we first got them. So the first two sheep, we found a farmer locally and he said, sorry, he sold us two sheep. One was a sheep that was known for its wool and one was a sheep that's known for its meat. So we got one of each and then we rented a ram. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is something I never thought was possible. <laughs> and it's, it's you know, farmers do it around here all the time. I didn't realize that, but they drop a ram off for six weeks in your pasture. And then I can't remember how many weeks later you have lambs in your pasture. So that was really exciting. The first year we did that, we only had one lamb. 
a couple of years ago, we had seven lambs born within a two week period. And that was actually a very traumatic two weeks. If I had an hour, I'd tell you all about pulling lambs out of my favorite sheep and (laughs) trying to save their lives. The sheep all lived, the lambs all lived, but it was very traumatic. (laughs) I think I'm almost done with the lambing season. I think we have two lambs right now. We have a, a guard donkey and we have a bunch of chickens and that's pretty much what we can handle right now. <laughs> but I do, I mean, the, the sheep are, are wonderful learning opportunities. You know, our boys have seen everything that involves raising um, sheep. So it's been a great journey these past, I guess, seven or eight years that we've had them. Where do you have time to read in this mix? It's a good question. I always have a book on me. I have it in my purse. I have it I'm in waiting rooms when my kids are in lessons. I steal moments when they're all reading for school I get up before the kids do and my husband goes to work and it's a quiet house. Mm -hmm. So I read then my boys are not avid readers yet. Their ages are 11, 13 and 14. And Mm -hmm. every now and then they'll find a book and they get really excited about it. But my youngest just, he does not like reading (laughs) at all. (laughs) And you know, you read all these things, you know, you model what Mm -hmm. you, you model for your children, what you want. And I always have a book in my hand. Mm -hmm. So I don't really think that works all the time. (laughs) Liz, when's the last time one of your boys got real excited about a book? Well, right now, my oldest, he really loves fantasy novels. So he was reading, oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm going to remember the names because (laughs) fantasy is not my genre. So he really likes those. An Ember in the Ashes, Mm -hmm. Saba Tahir is the author, and it's a trilogy. Um, He really got into that. And the first group of books he got into was a graphic author and he writes and draws all of his books. My, my middle son is reading wonder right now and he loves it. So that's exciting because he's the one who does not like reading the the, the most. Mm-hmm. And then my youngest is reading a Dave Barry book right now. It's called the worst class trip yeah. ever, something like that. And he, my middle son liked those ones too. So he's enjoying that one. Enjoying, <laughs> not loving. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not reading fantasy, what are you reading? I love contemporary fiction. I try to read books as they're published or within the year of them being published. I look for, I, I pick up the book page, you know, the magazine at the library yeah. um, for the publications that are coming up. And I always put them in my Goodreads list. And then I watch for them what their publication date is. And then I watch for the library to see when they actually get it in processing. And then I put a hold on it so I don't have to be the 50th person. Mm-hmm. I take advantage of my library a lot. I've just this past year started reading more sci-fi, which isn't typical of me at all. I don't like fantasy. I don't like sci-fi, but the sci-fi type dystopian, I don't know if that's an actual genre. (laughs) (laughs) Books that the, the ones that I've read this past year have been so good. And I thought this is a new genre that I'd like to explore. I read like Dark Matter and Mm -hmm. The Circle. I dove into 1Q84. Mm -hmm. That was a difficult read for me, but it was very enjoyable in the end. All the Birds in the Sky, Mm -hmm. which floored me. I didn't realize sci-fi could be beautiful and touching. (laughs) So that's what really excited me this past year, finding these books that are actually interesting. They're like contemporary fiction, but they have that sci-fi bent. You know, I'm not going to get up and and be excited about reading Dune. (laughs) (laughs) But if it has a really good story with characters and stories that actually touch you, I get into that. So when you're flipping through book page, looking at the books that are going to be coming out in the weeks and months to come, do you know what it is about the plot descriptions or the characters or the authors that really catch your eye and make you think, ooh, I want to read that one? I think it's the stories that just get to you. Like I just finished, um, Chloe Benjamin's the immortalist yesterday and Darn it, I, that was on my list. <laughs> oh, really? Um, <laughs> I, that wasn't exactly to my taste, but I thought it might be to yours. I, I just did not want it to end. I loved the characters and I had read, so I, I felt like I was reading. I love books about siblings. I have three siblings. My husband has three siblings. I have, we have three kids together. So I love stories about siblings and families. And this story just, it just got to me. I don't, I, I loved it. I thought the nest did a good job with the stories, even though the, the siblings in that story were not 
at all likable, but this one I thought just nailed it. And I really enjoyed that book. I remember seeing that in the book page. I think it was like the last Mm -hmm. edition of it on the page. It didn't sound that interesting. And then I started reading it and it just gripped me. I thought it was a really well-told story that when you read the description of the book, she takes it in places that I didn't think was possible. And I really enjoyed how she did that. Okay. Liz, I find it really interesting that you love contemporary fiction and Shakespeare. That is, that's ironic, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You know, you always hear that Shakespeare is to be seen and not to be read. And that's so true with me. I hate reading Shakespeare. I love reading. I love Shakespeare. I cannot stand reading Shakespeare um, unless I'm memorizing lines and getting into the text. But the plays are so long, you cannot get into the text as deeply while you're reading a play than if you're just memorizing roles for a character, lines for a character. I love seeing Shakespeare come to life on a stage or in a movie. I think the story just becomes more interesting. It's very, it's sensory filled. It's 3D in my head. The story is so flat on the page. And, you know, Shakespeare was meant to be listened to or seen and not read. And I think that's why I really enjoy his works as well as contemporary fiction. And I can only read contemporary fiction. I can't, I can't listen to it. I I can't do audiobooks because I lose, um, my concentration. I need to read it on a page. But when it comes to Shakespeare, he's, yeah, he's definitely, his language is very different than ours. So I need to see it come to life on stage. And, you know, that's what I enjoy. We've worked with some great costumers in the past couple of years. And I think that is a huge element to bringing the story to life is having these costumes that are so different than what we would wear. And I think that really helps in the storytelling too. So did you encounter Shakespeare first in the seat instead of like as a reader holding the book in your hand? I remember reading it in high school and not liking it at all. And that was my first memory of Shakespeare. And then I remember seeing, I think it was Hamlet, Mel Gibson's Hamlet Uh (laughs) back in high school. And that was my first time actually seeing Shakespeare. Actually, when I was younger, apparently I saw Macbeth, but I don't remember. (laughs) Um, Again, it's really hard to keep your attention that much. So you have to be, you have to have great costumes. You have to have great setting. You have to have wonderful actors with great poise. And, um, and I think that's, that's what I love about Shakespeare is just the living version of it and not the page version of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When you think contemporary fiction, how many years back are we willing to go? Oh, it can be 20, 30. I think some of my favorite books are in the past couple of decades. Contemporary fiction is definitely different now than it was 30 years ago. Correct. I mean, the writers are writing differently now. I'm noticing just because I'm reading a lot more, my um, tastes have changed and and evolved over the past decades. I don't know. Because we do have you on record as hating the classics, right? Yes, absolutely. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Mm -hmm. It's what, 1500 pages long. And I so loved watching the, I think it was the BBC or with, um, Gillian Anderson. I loved it. It, it, it. I got the book because I enjoyed it so much, but I cannot bring myself to sit down and read it. So I enjoy classics visually, but not on a book, in a book setting. I can't read it. <laughs> Are you able to articulate why that is? I think it's because my mind wanders when people are using language that isn't what I'm used to. That is the only thing I can come up with. I don't like long descriptions. My boys are re- are going through the Lord of the Rings right now mm-hmm. for a book club. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, it's not led by me because <laughs> <laughs> I I cannot. When they're listen, they're listening to it. They like to listen to most of their books, but when they are listening to it, my mind is well. Maybe it's because it's an audio book. But if I would sit down and read it, I've tried. I've read The Hobbit and thought this is just not my thing. I think it they, it moves slower. And I guess I don't know what the true definition of classic literature is. I'm thinking Charles Dickens. Some people might think something written in 1940 is classic literature. I guess I'm thinking more 150 years ago, that type of stuff. Jane Austen has, again, I've never been able to enjoy reading, but I love the movie versions. (laughs) I do like the Bronte sisters and I don't know why. I think I like melancholy. (laughs) Interesting. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear more about your favorites. And as you can probably totally tell I'm a little concerned about (laughs) what we are going to recommend. Are you ready to do this? Yeah. Okay, Liz, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And then we'll talk about what you should read next. It was probably written in the last 20 to 30 years. (laughs) That's a window that doesn't make me, you know, doesn't make my brain seize up. So we can do this. 
Okay, good. (laughs) Well, the first book, and when I was writing down these books, I have a lot of favorite books, but these are the three, or actually there's four that I've actually reread and I do not reread books. I have way too many on my to be read list that I I just don't have time to reread favorites, but these I have all reread at least once. And one of them I've reread twice. So the first one called more than, you know, it's by Beth Gutian. I love it so much because I guess it's, it's a romantic ghost story. I love melancholy. I think ghost stories are fascinating because a lot of people have not ever experienced what people call ghosts. And so I think they're fascinating as stories. It follows, I don't want to, it's so hard for me not to give anything away. So I'm just going to be very <laughs> cryptic. It, it follows two different couples. It, the storyteller is talking about the love of her life. And then it goes back a century earlier and talks about two people who fell in love. And I guess they have become ghosts to a house that this first couple was living in, in like the early part of this century. And so it follows their their two stories and the hauntings that they've experienced. It takes place in Maine, a little seaside town, which again is very romantic. So what I loved about it was just the creepy ghost story part, but also the intense emotions that the ghosts bring to their romances. Okay. I've never read that one. This is the one that I've read three times. I read it back when it came out, late 90s, and then again five years later, and then I just reread this one this past fall. It's a great book for fall reading, I think. Any ghost story is. (laughs) (laughs) What made you decide to reread these? I mean, did you just find yourself one day with a hankering to revisit these novels? What happened? That's a good question. This one has a beautiful cover. There's just this white house. It looks like a church sitting on the seaside. I remember the feeling it gave me when I first read it. I was gutted. I I was dating my husband. So I was also very emotionally attached to a romance myself. So maybe that had something to do with it. And the second time I read it, it didn't do that to me. But this past fall, I read it again and I thought, wow, this was a really good love story. So I think that's every now and then I just, I love to revisit stories that have really touched me. And I always tell people my favorite book of all time is A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. Mm -hmm. But I've never reread that. I don't feel like I can reread that. Mm -hmm. But that was the first book that gave me, you know, goosebumps. You know, I was in high school and I thought, wow, this was this was a book that actually made me feel everything that I feel when I'm watching a movie or something. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize books could do that. But I've never reread that one. So I don't consider that one of my favorites favorites. (laughs) Okay, so we're looking for books that make you feel big things. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Liz, what's your next favorite? My next favorite is a book and its sequel. I hope I'm not cheating. It's Father Melancholy's Daughter and the sequel called Evensong. And it's by Gail Godwin. The storytelling and the way she weaves in liturgy and the Episcopal Church into these people's lives who are dealing with really big things themselves. This is a story of a daughter and her father. And it's called Melancholy, Father Melancholy for a reason. He deals with depression it happens in the first page, so this really isn't giving too much away, but they deal with their mother leaving them or her mother leaving them, what happens in the course of the story and how their relationship grows as she grows. And then the second even song is follows her in her adult life. And I thought that they were just beautiful um, stories of relationships between fathers and, and daughters, but also friendship and grace, forgiveness, and growing up and falling in love yourself. Those I've reread just twice each. But I'm looking at Evensong thinking, I I can't remember parts of that, so maybe I need to reread that one. (laughs) (laughs) I love these and have also read them multiple times each. Have you read her most recent one, Grief Cottage? No, I did not know she had a new one out. Okay. We're going to talk about that. Because it's, it's, it's kind of a ghost story, and I think you might enjoy it. But I do really like in these novels by Godwin, I have read her other work, though not all of it. Flora has amazing reviews, and I just haven't gotten there yet. There's a lot going on in these stories. She has a lot of different plot threads that she pulls through that she brings together in yep. really nice ways, and a lot of really important relationships in the plot, not just one central one. And really like when an author can write with that kind of richness. Yeah. I'm thinking we're on the same page there. Yep, definitely. All right. What rounds out your favorites list? 
Audrey Niffenegger's mm. Her Fearful Symmetry. And again, it's a ghost story. <laughs> <laughs> I know Audrey Niffenegger because of The Time Traveler's Wife. I loved that story. I thought it was very tragic mm. and beautiful. I've not seen the movie, but I did love the book. This one, though, I just adore, and I've read it twice. It's probably due to be reread soon. I love that it takes place in England in a cemetery, in Highgate Cemetery. It follows the relationship between twin sisters and their crazy aunt Elspeth. I mean, Elspeth, that's a name that belongs in a ghost story. (laughs) It's very creepy. It's definitely a different different ghost story than um, the Beth Kuchian book. It's a weird ghost story. And if you know Audrey Neffenegger's writing, it's just, it's a little creepy. (laughs) <laughs> but it's also, yep. <laughs> I think I know a couple of people who have read it and maybe half of them loved it and half of them thought it was just too crazy, but I just loved it. I thought it just totally went there and <laughs> in a way that you just weren't, weren't expecting, or maybe some people do expect it, but I just thought it was really, really entertaining and creepy and lovely at the same time. So she is not a subtle writer and you were on board with that. <laughs> I, I am. I am. I can definitely handle that. Okay. Excellent. Liz, what's a book that didn't do it for you? Although I feel like we've already mentioned like 20, but. (laughs) Classic, definitely as a genre, what we talked about. But if I'm thinking one that I've read recently, um, The Martian by Andy Weir. I liked the movie. I enjoyed watching it with my kids. I liked the story. I just didn't like the way he wrote the story. I thought, I just felt it was a little science techie, thought it was a little cheesy, not boring because it was too technical, but it just wasn't for me. But I did like the story. I really want to like stories like that, but it just didn't do it for me this this time around. What do you mean you want to like stories like that? I love that I'm falling in love with this sci-fi genre. It's just weird for me. Maybe it has something to do with my love of ghost stories. I don't know because it's just otherworldly, I guess. So I want to, I want to enjoy more of the... I guess, dystopian sci-fi side of novels that uh, this is seriously new within the past year for me. I guess I really want to enjoy it more. So I wonder if The Martian was written a little bit differently, if you would have enjoyed it more. So all these books that you love are Mm -hmm. written in a, like a thoughtful, reflective melancholy is a word you've used. And The Martian is like, we got a situation on our hands, buddy. You know, it's just a totally different tone. Do you think the tone could be a thing here? Yes, absolutely. I think you've nailed it. The writing was just a little too elementary for me. I wanted it to be more wistful or more um, beautifully written, I guess. <laughs> Did you like the way the movie interpreted the book? Yeah, I, I thought it was very entertaining okay. and very enjoyable. So the story was great. Yeah. And I think that's what I loved about All the Birds in the Sky and The Book of Strange New Things. Mm-hmm. Those were so beautifully written and very weird sciencey too. <laughs> I love that balance and I need to find more of that. Is there a place in your life or on your bookshelf or in your beach bag or whatever it may be for a breezier page turner or one where the writing isn't as literary as these books on your favorite shelf? I'm asking with a very specific title in mind. Yes. Every now and then I like reading chiclet. Okay. <laughs> Um, sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me, but you know, the nest I thought was kind of chick litty and I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't think it was very deep or written from a literary bent, but it was very enjoyable. Um, Leanne Moriarty, I put her in the same genre. She's just kind of light, even though her topics are, you know, pretty dark, but that's very enjoyable. It's very quick page turner type stuff. Yeah. I definitely like those, especially when I'm sitting in a waiting room or, and I don't have to concentrate too much. And I do enjoy reading them from time to time, but I guess when it comes to sci-fi, I need it to be a little more beautiful because the sci-fi part is something I'm getting used to. (laughs) (laughs) What's your ratio of the more literary to the Chicklity. That makes me think of the cute little gum candy thing. <laughs> Chicklets. <laughs> I would say I read maybe five literary to okay. one chicklet. Okay. Liz, what are you reading right now? I am <laughs> I'm reading something that I would consider chicklet. I just picked up The Last Mrs. Parrish. Uh-huh. And maybe it's because I'm I'm I just finished The Immortalist, but the writing is just a lot more. And then we did this, and then she did this. It's 
it's a story that I'm not seeing where it's going. So I'm mm-hmm. excited about that because mm-hmm. I don't, I, I can't really, I'm really bad mm-hmm. at seeing where stories are going. I'm also reading Rethinking School by Susan Weiss Bauer, which is my nonfiction book because I love reading about different forms of education. Yeah. She was my college professor. So I tried to keep an eye oh, on what really? she does. Yeah. And I oh, wow. did not know about that book. I'm assuming that's newer. Yeah. It just came out in the past month. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you for that yes. information. <laughs> sure. I, I recommend it. It's very, very informative. She's very encouraging and very information. I mean, she has tons of information. So she, I love most of her books, but this, yeah. these are the kinds I love. Yeah. I think she's a smart cookie. I like to see what she's up to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Anything you want to be different in your reading life, Liz? Hmm. I guess we've talked, we've talked about the sci-fi. What I, I think I mentioned that what I want to be different is how I purchase my books. I've usually use our library. We have a great mm-hmm. library system, but I do want to start buying some of the books that I love. The Immortalists was a library book, but I need to own it and put it on mm-hmm. my shelf because I love it. I don't want to use Amazon hundred percent in my book buying purchases because I guess I was felt guilty last year. I went to see Ann Patchett give a talk um, down in Pittsburgh. She basically told everybody, you know, come to my bookstore and I'll give you help and I will find a book for you, but please don't go and buy it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of made me feel like, yeah, that's true. We have a lot of independent bookstores and I have to drive an hour to get to them because they're all in Pittsburgh or the surrounding neighborhoods. And I want to be able to um, support them. Yes. I think it's telling that the Immortalist was actually the top indie next pick for the month of January. Oh, wow. So I don't know if it's a coincidence or if in hindsight, you're thinking like, oh, no wonder I like that so much. Yeah, right. Because independent <laughs> booksellers do gather together and put out a really great list of that. It's called oh. the Indie Next List. And every month they put out a newsletter that you can get by email through your local independent store or your Pittsburgh independent store, or you could get it through my independent bookstore in Louisville if you wanted to. But okay. you yeah, can get on yeah. the mailing list and often they'll have the little newsletter uh, in paper form in the store. And since you like to read book page and see what's coming out, that could be a good way to stay on top of what are likely to be just based on your taste, the kind of books that often end up on that list. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's interesting. I didn't know they offered that kind of thing, like the personal book buying experience. I noticed that a lot of them host authors. So that's really exciting. I'm actually going to a writer's workshop this Saturday at a local independent bookstore down in Pittsburgh. I'm excited for that. This is the, you know, I haven't done things like that for a while, but what, what do they offer? What do I go in and, and ask the, do I ask for the manager or the owner and ask them for their recommendations? I mean, that I want to be able to utilize the bookstore the way that they're intending. Well, this would be a great question to ask your local store because so many independent stores do have their own specific bent. What is your yep. favorite indie in Pittsburgh? You know, I just made a list and the first one I went to was Riverstone, but I'm going to the Mystery Lovers Bookshop uh-huh. this this week and apparently that's been around for decades. Yeah. I really haven't been to any in Pittsburgh and that's why I really want to start. There's a new one called The White Whale, I think. Or the blue whale. I don't, it's one of the whales. <laughs> Either <laughs> way, that's really fun. And it's in a really cute little town um, right outside of Pittsburgh. These are all neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. Yeah. I started following all of them on Instagram um, so I can see what they're doing and things that they had. They just had Dar Williams last last week Ooh. give a little concert and I guess she has a new book out. I didn't realize she wrote. You know, I found out about that book through two different independent booksellers. One before it came out, um, Holland Saltzman of the Novel Neighbor in the St. Louis area yeah. was on the podcast and she told me about it. My husband is a longtime Dar Williams fan. So I tried okay. to be sneaky and yeah. get that for him for Christmas without him finding out. But then he listened to that episode and wrecked my plans. So, oh, no. <laughs> but then right after I was at Malaprop's bookstore in Asheville in November, yeah. Dar Williams was coming through town. So they had a huge display. They were super excited because yeah. Dar Williams and Asheville are basically meant for each other. So yeah, we still have that book on our coffee table, but I haven't read it yet. I'm excited to though. First of all, I think it's amazing that you have a list. I really thought you might fire back a single bookstore name. So I'm jealous that you have a whole host of ones you can investigate. Yeah. 
I'm so excited. There's one that is open up. Um, it's called Nine Stories, and it's actually adjacent to a um, a coffee shop that an old friend of mine owns. So it's kind of like you can go get a book and then go grab a cup of coffee because I think they have a door that oh, you can walk yes, in. Yes, please. So that's great, and that's down in Lawrenceville, which is a great little town or a great little part of Pittsburgh. Um, so that's a great. I mean, I want. I can't wait to go there and talk to the owners. So you're definitely on the right track with the events. That's something. Um, you know, in person book events are something that for better. Yeah. Or worse, probably worse, you cannot get on the internet. And also, yeah. when I'm visiting new independent bookstores, my favorite things to do are to check out the staff picks. It may be interesting to see who the book buyer is because they will know everything on their shelves. Yeah. But you don't mm -hmm. go to work in a bookstore if you don't love books. I mean, those jobs are yes. hard to get. So exactly. and people who love books are the ones, you know, filling those positions. So anyone mm -hmm. in a bookstore will have different taste than you probably. But right, right. if you do live close to a store and can develop a relationship and get to know the bookseller who has the taste most similar to yours, that can be really yeah. a wonderful thing. But also by having a variety of people putting the books on the shelves and recommending the staff picks or just, you know, you go in, you're not sure what to buy, or you yeah, only want right. to leave with two hardcovers, but you pulled five off the shelves, you know, a bookseller can help you decide which. But I do love talking to the ones who have taste different from mine because they point out to me things on the shelves that my eyes just glossed right over because they didn't exactly. mean anything to me. Yeah. Or I didn't know. And just like we do on What Should I Read Next, a local bookseller can answer the question like, okay, I love Audrey Niffenegger and she hasn't had a book come out in too long. What should mm -hmm. I read instead? And they can answer those questions. Oh, that's awesome. That's good. Okay. That's good to know. I went back in a couple of weeks ago to my first the one down, it's about 45 minutes from me. And I bought two books and I think I bought them because of your recommendations on a, a previous podcast. So I hope you enjoyed them. Oh, I, well, I haven't read them yet. I bought them because <laughs> I loved, I, they were beautiful. And well, one of them was, uh, to the bright edge of the world. It's a one Ivy. Okay. She, um, just cause I love the snow child. So I bought that. I haven't uh -huh. read it yet. So, and the other one was the goal and the, and the genie. Uh -huh. I've intrigued by that. I don't know if I'll love it, but I, it's a beautiful book. I feel good about those for you though. Okay. Oh, good, good, good. I should have known that you pick out the ones that speak to you and you have a good track record with that. So <laughs> something else about the bookstore that bears repeating is just the browsability factor, because this isn't true for everyone, but studies do show that most people, when they shop on Amazon, they sit down, they type in what they're looking for, they buy it and they leave. But in a bookstore, I mean, bookstores are made for browsing. Mm -hmm. So you find things that you weren't necessarily looking for, which is one of the delights of the reading life. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> it wouldn't be what should I read next if I wasn't a little terrified right now, but I have a long <laughs> list of potential ideas and I'm ready to dive in if you are. Okay, great. I certainly am. Okay. This, you said sci-fi like 19 bazillion times. <laughs> Just because I'm so new to I it. I <laughs> know, but you mentioned like all the ones that I think might be up here. I'm like, oh, what? Maybe she might like this. No, oh, look, no. she's already read it. <laughs> I feel like I've talked about Station Eleven too much on the podcast already, but have you read that? I have. Okay. I was going to say, I just really wanted to make sure that was on your list. Did you like it's it? Great. Was that for you? I loved it. I loved that it had an element of hope at the end. I just loved that book. Yes. Yes. I just had to say that out loud because it's Shakespeare and a traveling theater company and science fiction and it's broody, melancholy, lovely. And it was just all the things. My husband, he doesn't have time to read, but he read that and loved it too on our last beach vacation. So yeah, I loved it. You know what, though? I forgot that there actually is a book along those lines that you might like. Have you heard of Good Morning Midnight? I have not. Okay. This is being called a read-alike for Station Eleven, which makes me really, really nervous. And I kind of see what they're talking about. I'm on like page 200 myself. I haven't finished it. So okay. I, I can't say where it ends up. But it's literary science fiction. And I think we found okay. that you like that. So it's about two people at the end of the world. Something terrible has happened. You don't know what. There's an astronomer in deep space. Um, there's a manned mm. mission to Jupiter involved somehow. And on the way back to Earth, they lose communications with our planet. And they don't know why. It's science-y. But it's realistic science fiction. <laughs> and yep. it's been called a really lovely meditation on love and loneliness and ambition mm. and loss. Mm -hmm. The characters are 
earnest but not cloying and Mm -hmm. they're in a place where the distractions are gone just you know the hustle and bustle in everyday life and they're forced to focus on what really matters and what endures till the end and it's very introspective and melancholy and I think those are checking your boxes yeah that sounds great that sounds really good it's really grasping for some science fiction I'm glad my brain delivered something (laughs) along those those lines It's by Lily Brooks Dalton, and I believe the title comes from an Emily Dickinson poem. Mm. Not that I think you'd plop that on your nightstand, but I... Although I do like, I I love Emily Dickinson, because she's she's poetry, so it's not like you have to sit down and read it for two weeks. (laughs) She's very melancholy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, she is. So I thought that route to the past without making you read books written in the past might might be a plus. Love it. Here, I'm just going to go for it. I keep tossing around this book in my mind because I think you might find it really, really interesting or it's also possible you might hate it. Have you read or heard of I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes? I've heard of it, but I have not read it. It's enormous, especially if you check out like a hard cover in the library. It's not, (laughs) it's just a little over 600 pages. Is that, I mean, it's shorter than 1Q84. Yes, definitely is shorter. Yeah, that's 600 pages is okay. (laughs) Okay, so... uh, I don't want you to rush out to the bookstore and buy this without having a conversation with somebody or reading, okay. reading the jacket really <laughs> carefully or plopping open the text and starting to read and seeing if you're actually going to like the style. But what I like about this is it's a thriller, definitely some sciency strains going through it. And there are quite a few different plot lines are woven together and come together really, really well in the end. There's all, yeah, there's all kinds of scientific details that the story would absolutely collapse without in many of the multiple plot lines. And I still think about this book all the time for a couple of the really Mm -hmm. interesting details that Hayes plops in, even though I read it, I think in 2014, when it first came out, it was like a big summer release then. So that's going on for four summers old. Yeah. But um, let's just say it starts with someone carrying out the perfect crime and they're doing all these weird things very very carefully in the midst of the chaos that is 9-11 you can Mm -hmm. tell this is not normal but you don't know why like is it just something done by a psychopath or by someone who's being really really careful for a reason we can't yet figure out but it involves questions of DNA and identity and we'll leave that plot line there but then there's also (laughs) uh, they're bad guys Liz who, That's okay. <laughs> who want to carry out an act of bioterrorism. And so you can see how that begins and why and how it's carried through the story and the very specific ways they have to interact with the scientific community. And I do not speak crime language <laughs> particularly well. I can do procedurals, but um, yeah, not this kind of more thrillery thing. Yeah. So if you want to carry out an act of bioterrorism, how does one go about it? Well, they walk you through from like the origin to when they're getting ready to like unleash their thing on the world. And this is a little bit grisly in places, although never for long because science isn't always pretty when you're talking about the kind of things talked about in this novel. But Hayes has such a rich eye for detail. He doesn't go on and on like Bleak House. Describe, I just compared Terry Hayes to Bleak House. That's not going to happen anywhere else. But, you know, okay. he doesn't describe things for the sake of describing them, but he doesn't gloss over the details. He says like, okay, well, this happened and this is why. And the way that he uses some of those details and points out why they really mattered in the story are just fascinating to me. Like, as one example, one of his characters tracks down the anonymous author of a book mm. based on some very obscure details in the story. And you can just tell the way his mind works by the way he just wove this several page story through I Am Pilgrim. But the writing is definitely closer to The Last Mrs. Parish than Station Eleven. Okay, gotcha. What, what do you think? I think it sounds great. Okay. <laughs> I'm really intrigued. Okay. <laughs> I am very interested to hear what you think about that. Liz, have you read The Family Fang? No, I've not heard of that one either. I'm not sure if this is up your alley. It might be. It was an indie next pick, I'm pretty sure. Oh, it's okay, It's by Kevin Wilson. Uh, it came out, give or take, five years ago. But the reason I'm thinking of it here is because it's a family story. They're siblings. There's a, there's a tight-knit family. And they're a family of artists. 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the parents are performance artists. The kids don't care so much unless they are made part of the art. And you own a theater company and you have children. Yeah. And <laughs> that's just worth mentioning. That's the kind of book that I would really expect to find at one of those independent bookstores in Pittsburgh. So they should know Kevin Wilson. You can ask yes. them, put it in your hands in person, you know, give it a look through, see if it looks like it's for you. The tone, I don't know, maybe not. That's what makes me hold back. But the content, I think, might be really fun for you. Okay, that sounds fun too. Then, I don't know, if it's Gail Godwin, do we even count it? Sure. If you have one that you think is enjoyable along the lines of Father Melancholy's Dollar, I mean, not similar, but I've read, I can't remember the good husband. And I, I think I pitched it. I just didn't like it. And I think I tried to read another one, but so if you have one that I would love to try. Okay. Grief cottage. It just came out last summer. Okay. It's pretty new. I enjoyed this one and I read it quickly. Um, just as a okay. sign of like, I wanted to find out what happens next. So I think that's always a good thing. Yeah. And it sounds like it is for you too, but it's not as uh, rich and layered as I found father melancholy's daughter and even song to be, okay. but I still think for as much as you like those books that you would mm -hmm. find it worth your time, especially the tone is very melancholy. It's called grief cottage because there's a cottage on this coastal South Carolina Island that is haunted and it's haunted because something terrible happened there 50 years before. A boy, a young boy, I believe he was 11, and his parents died there in a hurricane, a terrible hurricane 50 years before. And when another 11-year-old boy suddenly finds himself living with his reclusive great aunt on the South Carolina island after his parents die, he starts exploring the island and discovers this ghost that is his age in the cottage. And of course, the great aunt has a storied past and a troubled present. And there's a few other unlikely friends and adopted family in the story because it's Godwin and because it's a, it's an <laughs> island where you're surrounded by artists. So of, cor of right. course, that has to be that way. But I think it has the right tone for you. It's got the ghost story element, which we know you like. <laughs> it's not very long. I think it's right about 300 pages. So fairly typical hardcover. I think it would be worth your 300 pages. That sounds great too. That sounds wonderful. Okay, but I feel like Gail Godwin doesn't really count. So did you ever read Longbourn by Joe Baker? I haven't. So it's not actually Longbourn I had in mind. So that's kind of an upstairs, downstairs version of Pride and Prejudice. Wait, that's not fair. That's a downstairs version <laughs> of Pride and Prejudice. Okay. It is... Austin from the servant's perspective, very interesting. I think the best line in the book is actually on the jacket. Oh, they do terrible <laughs> things with Mr. Wickham. <laughs> but she also has this book called The Telling. It's not science fiction, I'm sorry to say, but it is a ghost story. And this was actually written almost a decade ago, but it is just landing on a lot of readers' radars in the United States because it was only released here for the first time in the past couple of years. It's got the kind of uh, like the rich brooding atmosphere that mm -hmm. Audrey Niffenegger does so well in her fearful mm. symmetry. Um, definitely melancholy got a family situation. There's an English country cottage that is literally falling apart. And when a young woman in fragile emotional states arrives mm -hmm. at this cottage, the history of grief and loss in the house is brought to the surface in um, really spooky ways. Wow. That sounds... That sounds really good. <laughs> I've never actually seen this in a bookstore, but oh, another thing about the independent bookstores, they can get anything you want for you. Oh, good. They can yeah. order. That's yeah. great. It may take a few days, but you'll be back. So it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Any chance to drive to Pittsburgh? I love being there. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. She writes really well about women's lives specifically. And okay. um, like, just like in Longbourn, she does write about the working class, uh, but she, she makes the past feel really present, especially with her plot device here. Like there's a reason to like bring everything that happened before, like rushing to the surface. And I think she does it really well. And it's a layered story, which I think you also really like. Love it. Okay. So Liz of those, how many is that? What sounds, That's like five, five or six. What sounds good to you? What do you think you'll read next? Oh, I think I'm going to go for I am Pilgrim first. That sounds really intriguing because <laughs> I've heard, I've heard of it before, but I've not 
ever thought that I would read it. So you just sold it to me. So I think I'm going to go for that Well, first, but I'm reading all of them. <laughs> I'm a little nervous, but mostly overwhelmingly curious. So I hope you read quickly so I can hear what you think. Okay, great. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thank you. This was really fun. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Liz today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Liz and let them know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 120, that's 120, and it's also where you'll find the fullest of titles we talked about today. Readers, next week we're visited by special guests, Kristen Meinsner and Jolenta Greenberg from By the Book Podcast, a show they describe as half self-help podcast, half wild social experiment. Kristen and Jolenta live by the rules of a different self-help book every two weeks, and in episode 121, I have the honor of recommending which books they maybe should submerge themselves in next. Now that is some high-risk book matchmaking. Here's a sneak peek. Every time you have to pick up every object that you own, whether it's a pencil or your computer, and ask aloud, does this bring me joy? Also, just throw out half of what you own. That's pretty much Yeah, I would say also <laughs> just maybe for a Brooklynite living in 550 square feet with another human and a dog, I just love an excuse to get rid of clutter. Yeah, so. I have to say that that was really hard for me because she sees a lot of things that I consider human and complicated and exciting and emotional. She sees those things as clutter. So right. that includes books. And sadly, that includes art. You're yeah. only allowed to have art on the inside of your closet door, not on your walls. I apparently totally blocked that out. I did give away over 200 books during that. Wow. I gave away tons and tons of books. Um, yeah, she still has plenty of books, I promise. <laughs> I do. I still have plenty of books. And one thing that I would not part with were my late grandmother's cookbooks. I would never get rid of any of those. There's a special category, right? That keeps the sentimental items, yeah. And you can have one shoebox of those. Are you serious? That's I've actually read this book, but I'm still so surprised because that sounds so drastic. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty drastic. Yeah, She spends yeah. a lot of time sorting and crying, folding and crying. <laughs> lots of crying and lots of folding. Readers, this one is so much fun. Listen in next week on What Should I Read Next Podcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't done so yet, remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to hear about this and all the other good stuff coming your way in 2018. Make sure you're on the list so you stay in the know. Sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.